Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. In this special episode, I speak with Mary Ellen Wiederwall, President and CEO of Accelerator for America. After decades of disinvestment in our nation's infrastructure, in the fall of 2021, President Biden and Congress came together and passed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or BILL, the largest long-term investment in our infrastructure and economy in our nation's history. Accelerator for America is spearheading Infrastructure Week, no longer a long-running joke in Washington. They'll be highlighting important infrastructure projects around the country and showing how smart implementation of Bill can change communities for the better. I sat down with Mary Ellen to talk about what's on tap for Infrastructure Week and how this historic investment will just not impact people where they live, but hopefully change people's perceptions about what government can do. I hope you enjoy. All right, Mary Ellen Wiederwall, welcome to an honorable honorable profession. Lovely to be with you this afternoon. Also going to be an honorable conversation is what I started to say. But so welcome to an honorable profession and it's going to be an honorable conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're just going to be really honorable this afternoon. I'm so excited to have you. We're talking in the lead up to Infrastructure Week, which is coming up and something that we're all excited about and working together on. And so really happy to have you as a guest here to talk to us a little bit about that. But I thought I'd start with just a really simple question for our listeners who are not familiar with your group. You are the president and CEO of Accelerator for America. What is Accelerator for America? Accelerator for America is a national nonprofit organization that works with mayors, other local leaders, and their economic development and infrastructure leaders. We work together to find and develop real-time solutions for economic insecurity and share, scale, and replicate those across the country. We work in two primary areas, economic development and transit and infrastructure. One of the founding catalysts for Accelerator for America was the passage of Measure M in Los Angeles. Mayor Eric Garcetti is our founding leader for Accelerator, and he and his team and the folks at LA Metro got that done in 2016. It's the largest ballot initiative ever for local infrastructure. And a lot of people looked at that and said, hey, Mayor, how'd you get that done? Because I need to get that in my community. And so that really did spur the creation of Accelerator, both in terms of the content of our work around what local communities can do for transit and infrastructure, And then also into that mission of there are great ideas out there in every community. Let's share those in communities across the country for greater wealth. It's so exciting. And you do have, like we do at New Deal, you have a huge network of mayors and others that you work with to share those best practices and act as a catalyst for change. So before we get into Infrastructure Week specifically, let's talk just infrastructure generally, which is, this is a really exciting time for infrastructure, actually. (laughs) Really? Really an exciting time. And I was 
thinking of preparing to talk to you just about like the joke that we used to always have, like, oh, it's infrastructure we could get. Oh, it's infrastructure we get. Nothing happens, right? And here yet, you know, after the Biden-Harris administration and Congress were able to pass the bipartisan infrastructure law last fall, we now have the biggest investment ever in the history of the country in infrastructure in our economy. And not just in roads and bridges is what people might think about, but in water infrastructure and broadband and other things. So just kind of maybe just set the table for us. What does it look like out there that we now have some resources and why is that so important? Yeah, this is where we are today, the culmination of more than a decade of very direct advocacy by many organizations, many leaders across the country at all levels to really elevate our conversation about infrastructure. We know this from national headlines that we've fallen behind. We get the report cards from the civil engineers that, well, we get D's and F's. We're not in passing grades, folks, as a country. And if you're able to travel to other countries, you also can get a pretty good side-by-side comparison about how the other developed nations around the world have invested in themselves, invested in their infrastructure, which is ultimately an investment in quality of life. After more than a decade of advocacy, we did finally get the bipartisan infrastructure law, thanks to the leadership of this administration and bipartisan leadership in Congress. And that's one of the really unusual hallmarks of infrastructure. It is a bipartisan topic. You get Democrats and Republicans agreeing, and we don't see a whole lot of that today. So we're pretty excited to be a part of that, to be a part of that advocacy coalition. And now, starting last year, when the United for Infrastructure group kind of reached that inflection point, they had been leading Infrastructure Week and other infrastructure advocacy, passed the bill and said, we think it's time to take this into a new era, hand it off to new leadership. We were pleased under our 501c4 Accelerator for America Action to take that on and continue the tradition of infrastructure advocacy. Well, tell us a little bit about Infrastructure Week. What is the goal of it? What's going to be happening that week? Maybe how can people be part of it even? Absolutely. Well, Infrastructure Week is continuing. It's more than a meme, folks. It's a really serious week of activities. So Infrastructure Week this year is May 15th through 19th, and it does have signature event in D.C. as it always has. But most importantly, we want to see activities and events and communications across the country that both lift up what's happening in the bipartisan infrastructure law, but tell the greater story about infrastructure in your community. So we're at a point now in the implementation of this bill, a year and a half in, that we are actually seeing projects in the ground, which is super exciting. And we've actually seen a few start to come to fruition. So we can actually uh, say done, mission complete on a few of those infrastructure projects and just so much money rolling out the door. And, And I hope folks are keeping track of this. Late last year, there was a national poll that showed something like only one quarter of Americans even knew that the infrastructure bill had passed. And this is one of the most significant pieces of legislation for a generation. And so we want people out in our communities to know that this is coming, that this investment is happening in their communities and what it's going to mean for their lives. So it's storytelling, not just about the concrete and rebar. That's important. We're good with that. But talking about what it means to us as Americans in our community, what it means for new jobs, new careers for people, better opportunities for their families. And even if you're not working in the infrastructure space, what it's going to mean for your quality of life. Maybe there's been a bridge out in your community and that's finally going to get replaced. That's going to cut your commute time. It's going to make it easier to get your kids to soccer practice. Whatever it is that's been choked up in your community and infrastructure, we hope that it improves. And it is much more than roads, too. We talk about ports and pipes. 
we have a lot of investment going into our ports and our airports. Those obviously have big economic competitiveness components to them. And we have the largest infusion of dollars into water since the Clean Water Act, so more than a generation ago. And we need more than that. And so that's the other sort of headline here. Beyond Infrastructure Week is about communicating what's going well. It's also to set the stage for what needs to be an ongoing investment in America, in America's critical infrastructure for our quality of life and our country's economic competitiveness. Absolutely. I mean, I'd love to pull the thread on a couple of things you said in, in some of that. I mean, one is I, I feel like it's really important, one thing you said earlier about how we had fallen behind on investment. We were just underfunding, I mean, for so long, right? And so, you know, when people, some people look at this, there's been a criticism, it's just so big, it's such a, a big amount of money. This is making up for decades, really, of neglect yeah. in a number of areas. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? It's important for people to realize that, I think, right? It really is. It's part of the larger context in which this sits. Most people are familiar with the concept deferred maintenance. (laughs) In fact, most of our local leaders in their budgets every year have a deferred maintenance list. Well, America's infrastructure has been a pretty long deferred maintenance list for far too long. And so now we've got this making up to do. So yes, it sounds like a lot of money, $1.3 trillion. The reality is half of that was simply the reauthorization of the surface transportation bill, which will happen again in a few years. So the $550, $600 million of of really, truly new money that's coming into this. But it is really probably about 20% of what we need to spend over a period of time to catch up to where we ought to be. Just fix it first. That's what a lot of this is. A lot of this isn't even really glamorous. It is fix it first. And then thinking about what are the longer term investments we need to make to stay economically competitive. So I uh, tell a quick story here. I have a colleague who recently traveled to Japan, had the opportunity to travel there on vacation. And he came back and we're all like, oh my gosh, tell us about Japan. How was it? And he sort of wryly smiled and he said, you know, I'm kind of wondering who actually won the war. Wow. <laughs> and we all laughed a little. He said, no, seriously. He said, in the last year, I've had the privilege of being able to travel to both Japan and Germany. And you look at their infrastructure, you look at their high-speed rail networks, you look at their multimodal transportation. And they did invest over the many decades where we just kind of limped along and added to that deferred maintenance list. And now you see the differences between our countries. And that ultimately does add up to a larger cost for us. So if you refuse or delay investment, there are costs that accumulate over time. Absolutely. Totally. And another thread is is kind of what you were talking about. I mean, this is really government's role, right? I mean, essentially, I'm kind of on this kick right now about being frustrated that we've been hearing for 30 years that government's the enemy, government's the problem. I mean, this is really government at its best. This is government providing roads and broadband and water quality and getting rid of lead pipes, right, in across the country and all these things that are, that, you know, really may not have a private sector solution. I mean, there's also, there's plenty of, of public-private partnerships going on around some of these projects. That's not all government, but I mean, it is government doing what it needs to do to invest in America, to invest in our communities, to make this country great. And to, as you said, to be economically competitive and everything else we need. So I'm excited about kind of the storytelling piece of it that you're going to do about reminding people that this investment, the good things that it can do and the good things it's bringing to the communities. Is, are there things that you're particularly excited to highlight during Infrastructure Week that you're seeing around the country? Yeah. And, and I want to pick up on the theme that you put there around collective goods. 
we've had an attack on collective goods for probably about 40 years now. And we've gotten a little fat and happy in America. We want everything because we've had a lot and we don't want to pay for it. (laughs) And so that's partly why we got to the place that we've gotten where we need to make these big investments because we tried to limp along for so long and have everything and not pay the piper. And these collective goods are what makes a civil society. When we come together as a society, whatever organizing it is, you have these common goods and collective goods and public goods that are at the foundation of that. And in America, we've done so well, we kind of forgot about it. And maybe we forgot about it until that moment when you turn on your faucet and the water doesn't come out. Or you turn onto what is your normal route to work and the road is closed because the bridge is no longer safe to take. And so we've got a whole collection of things like that that we've got to reinvest in and appreciate as Americans the importance of our collective goods. And I could go on and, and extend this easily into discussions of investing in libraries and parks, these other collective goods that we share and we use. We might not use them all the time. But if we don't start thinking again as Americans about the things that we're willing to pay for together because we use them collectively, I feel like that's a very big threat to our American democracy. Because the opposite of that is what I call fee-for-service democracy. That, oh, I'm in a democracy, I get things, but I only want to pay for the things that I use. That's not the way democracy works. And frankly, that's the way democracy dies, is when we're not willing to share together in our collective good. So I didn't answer your question. I'm going to come back and answer your question. (laughs) Said I absolutely loved what you said. I think, and I think it's so important right now. And I love that you tie it to democracy because I actually think these things are absolutely joined. This idea of government's role and what we think of our government and what government can do and how we think about democracy. And I totally agree with you. Like we are all in this together. We've really lost that. I fear we have lost that sense of community, that sense of that we're all in this together. And so I love that you tied those things together. Hey there. I want to take a moment to recommend a podcast for those of you who are looking for more hopeful and positive voices around urban change. Our friend Andrea Learned's podcast, Living Change, A Quest for Climate Leadership. Andrea interviews local leaders who are living the change they want to see reflected in their communities. And she goes beyond city leaders to find corporate and media professionals who are also leading the way, from CFOs to Emmy Award winners. These conversations highlight how people's personal values integrate into their work. There are some really good stories here, so I hope you give it a listen. Check out Living Change, A Quest for Climate Leadership, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, back to our show. But yes, please, if you want to tell us a little bit about what you're talking about, specifically in some of the projects you're seeing out there, as you said, I mean, it's exciting that we're finally seeing, because it takes time, you pass the bill, you have to figure out how it's going to go out, you have to put all the rules around it. And so now we're seeing those projects on the ground now, and we're going to be seeing them for the foreseeable future. Like, what are some of the things you're, you're excited about around the country? Well, as many of you know, I'm a girl from Louisville, Kentucky, and you can't be from Kentucky and not talk about the Brent Spence Bridge. <laughs> It's a great example of a mega project, long overdue, long debated. I sit here in the Louisville region where we were able to complete a two-bridge solution across the Ohio River here with Southern Indiana a number of years ago, but the Brent Spence Bridge didn't 
get to a shovel ready status until recently. And the leadership in D.C. and the leadership here in the two states of Ohio and Kentucky really coming together. And I actually think the groundbreaking photo from the Brent Spence Bridge, when they all said, yes, we've got the money and here we go, it's going to be maybe lifetime, one of my most favorite photos of bipartisanship that you could come across. And so that's something that's pretty exciting. We've got a lot of investment going into ports. We learned a lot during the pandemic about challenges in our supply chain. And so there's investment going into both the physical side of ports, but also the back end, the stuff that you don't see. There's some really great work going on. It's part of transportation around understanding where all of our goods move and how they move and getting the supply chain providers and, and the freight movers to actually talk to each other. There are several projects across the country on freight movement that are very exciting as well. And obviously, we've got the big tunnel project up in the east. Some of these megas are, are pretty sexy to keep an eye on. But there's going to be projects in everybody's community, too. At the city level, we all get pretty excited about raise grants. Raise grants are some of the best money that local governments can get to do the projects that really come home to people at the street level. And so we've got a lot of those. And the raise grants combined with reconnecting communities, those are really going to start to chip away at the way infrastructure was used in the 20th century to divide us. And that's a real ugly history that we need to understand. And most communities are starting to really understand. But to think about how our predecessors in local, state and federal government, unfortunately, used infrastructure in racially discriminatory ways. And they layered that onto redlining, urban renewal, city planning, and then laid down the concrete and pavement to keep people apart by race, which ultimately has kept people apart economically and created huge swaths of concentrations of poverty in most of our urban areas, whether it's your West End, your North City, your South Side, you see that in most places. And they're constrained by physical infrastructure. So I'm excited about the programs that are deploying now that will help tear down literally some of that infrastructure and rebuild infrastructure that actually connects us. And I'll add another point on this. We're really thrilled at Accelerator for America to have been named with the U.S. Department of Transportation and some partners on their Thriving Communities program. And so we're going to be working with 14 communities across the country on transit-oriented development and helping those communities move forward with their projects and get those into actual dirt moving and off the concept table. Yeah, I love that. And congratulations. It's a huge project and it's really exciting. I love that you brought up the connectivity piece. And I think that's super important for people to understand and the, you know, about some of the goals, right? We, we I, One of the other things that I'm kind of interested and excited about right now is that over the last number of years, there's been this breaking down of silos, right? A little bit that we think about infrastructure over here and connectivity over here, our mobility, and we think about climate over here. So I wanted to ask you maybe if there's other through lines. I mean, I, I know that, you know, a big part of the bipartisan sister deal, for example, has been to think about as we're doing these projects, the climate implications, right? There's the equity question, there's climate. Maybe say anything about that, or if there are other bigger goals or bigger themes that you're seeing kind of running through a lot of this work. So, you know, sometimes when I tell people about our two main bodies of work being economic development and transit infrastructure, they kind of look at me funny, sideways, cock the head and go, What are those two things? I'm like, well, transit and infrastructure is a tactic towards creating greater economic mobility. It's the fact that 
Transit gets you to work, it gets you to school, it creates great quality of life because the path to prosperity is certainly not in a single occupancy vehicle. <laughs> we can have them, we can't use them all the time, folks. And then infrastructure jobs are wonderful. And in fact, that's a big theme for our infrastructure week this year is infrastructure works for America. And it is about the jobs that this act is going to create for people. And it's not just the jobs that are going to have to do with these specific projects. We're talking about whole new careers. So we're working closely with North America's building trades unions on creating new pre-apprenticeship programs across the country that will help track folks into the apprenticeship and a whole new opportunity for a new career and a great job for life. And there's a lot of opportunities coming out of the Department of Labor right now, which we're grateful for on that as well. One of my only worries is that we're not going to get there fast enough. I was at a, a meeting with our friends at the Building Trades week before last, and we were trying to prioritize some cities and states. And the number of billion-dollar projects just kept piling onto the list. And so there's no shortage of opportunity out there. So I think workforce is really the biggest headline of that. And the way it's just going to change people's lives. And, and we've all got to dig in on that. Our workforce system in America is not nearly big enough or robust enough to digest all of this in a natural way. So a lot of organizations, local and state governments need to get involved. And then I think the climate aspect of this cannot be understated. And of course, now we're you know a year and a half into the implementation of bipartisan infrastructure law and along comes the Inflation Reduction Act. Very different kind of law. BIL is formula spending and grants, and then IRA is tax credits. It's completely different. <laughs> Just last week, we put out a newsletter for our constituencies and local government to help them organize, organize their thoughts, and then organize around the Inflation Reduction Act and how to think about it. But, you know, we've got a chance as we rebuild America's infrastructure to do it differently. Yes, there will be a lot of just fixing the stuff we have, and that's going to be a lot of traditional stuff. But how can we do it differently? How can we reduce the climate impacts? A lot of our cities have urban heat islands. How can we be sure as we fix the concrete and the pavement and the other things that we're doing it in a greener way so that we reduce what's happening with climate? We're all focused on how we can bend that curve towards 2030 where the climate red light is flashing. But we also have to think about climate adaptation. And climate adaptation is a lot about infrastructure. So a quick story from one of the things we're working on, we have a smart city accelerator project in five cities with our partners at Honeywell. And each of those cities is doing a smart city strategic plan and applying for the smart grants and, and related opportunities. Everybody's got a little bit of different focus, but one of the huge things that came up in a through line through all of them is climate impacts and particularly these large rain events. And these huge rain events that occur in micro areas dump a ton of rain in a very short period of time. And there is just no amount of infrastructure, old or new, that's going to account for some of that. So then how do you build in adaptation techniques so that you protect your residents? And so we have one example with viaducts where this water comes down quick in the wrong place and you got a lot of railroad tracks going over. These things fill up quickly. People drive into them and they die. So how do you build warning systems? It's not as sexy as a new bridge across the Ohio River, but it's a kind of project that we need to think about now with the way that climate is changing in our communities and how we either build infrastructure to deal with that or we build the adaptation techniques to be safer. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's so much really exciting stuff, actually. I mean, maybe it's not sexy. I don't know. I think it's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> That way. But, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's just, it's exciting to think about being able to 
solve problems and address these challenges and, and to get ready to where, where we know we're going. Like you said, I mean, yes, we should have to think about how we can bend the curve on climate change and on carbon capture and all those things, but we also have to adapt. We know that this is these uh, extreme weather events. I live in California, of course, and that rain story you just told resonates with me very much, right? And I keep part yeah. of for dealing with firefighters and then rain that comes down and brings mud with it. So it's, you know, it's really, really important. It's a here and now thing. It's it's something everybody's dealing with in a new way. And it's usually heat or water, too much, too little. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah. And sometimes one and sometimes the other, right? Within a, you know, a very small. <laughs> a very short period of time, yes. <laughs> I know we're supposed to wrap up here, but I, I do want to ask you two other questions. One is, I just wonder if there's anything else you want to say about, you mentioned it a couple of times. So if you want to expand on the bipartisan nature of this. It is exciting to see, and again, I think it goes back to the conversation we're having about the messages we get about government. You know, this was a really big deal that happened in a bipartisan way. And so it's possible. Are you seeing that kind of coalition hold around the country? Are people from both parties coming together around the implementation piece? Do you think this continues to be a place where bipartisan agreement continues to happen? I do. And every once in a while, I feel like I should cross fingers and toes. And every once in a while, I sort of look over my shoulder to see if it's, anything has changed or sneaking up on us. But it appears to be holding as a, as a strong bipartisan issue. I think in terms of the two parties and the polarization, there are folks in each of the parties who are more focused on cultural issues, social issues. But there are huge numbers of people in both parties who see the importance of investing in the built environment and what that means for our quality of life and our our quality of place. And so that holds. And I'll have to also cutely say, I've never met anybody in elected office who didn't want to go to a groundbreaking or a ribbon cutting. (laughs) So this gives everybody that, whether you wear red or you wear blue, this is good stuff. (laughs) I was going to be snarky and say whether or not you voted for it, but I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I run a a bipartisan organization, but you can Google me and and find out pretty quickly which path I followed. Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess I also wanted, while I had you, I love an honorable profession. We love to talk to people about kind of their own path into politics and public service. And you've had such an interesting career starting out majoring in in music in college, which I just love. You actually. And so I'm kind of, you know, what's your story about how you found your way from there to working for a long time with one of our mutual friend of ours, Mayor Greg Fisher in Louisville, and doing all kinds of great work on economic development and housing and other things in the city. And then now running this national organization. Did you just kind of, is this where you thought you would be when you were playing music in college? I'm guessing probably not. (laughs) No, life has been such a beautiful journey and circuitous path. You know, it's funny, I always loved politics. I think I kind of just got that naturally. And I don't know why I didn't figure it out a little sooner, but I did start to figure it out by the end of college. But by that point, I already had enough credits to get a bachelor's in music, so I did. (laughs) Picked up a minor in poli-sci along the way. But yeah, it, it was really around the end of college that I really dug into personally where this was going to take me. And all right, I'll go ahead and reveal. I was president of the College Democrats in college. This is part of the story here. Ah, there you go. It means I wasn't, I wasn't trying to get that out of you. I didn't know that fact, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the story. It's an organic answer. So I was president of the College Democrats, and I signed up for the Frankfurt internship. I was a student at the University of Louisville, 
And they assigned me the top Democrat on campus with the top Democrat in the legislature. This is when Kentucky's legislature was controlled by Democrats in both houses. And so I worked for a state senator who was the majority leader, and I just loved it. I mean, the minute I got into it, I was like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so through a few years there in the early part, a couple of experiences in the legislature and then out into the executive branch of state government and then out into the private sector. I love to joke people. I was like, yeah, I'm in public affairs, which was a sanitized way of saying I was a lobbyist. I was in government relations. It was a lot of fun, though, I worked on so many different issues. And, and I had clients as diverse as Fortune 500 companies to the public schools. It was one of the leading advocates for public education and the arts and all sorts of other nonprofit causes. And so that full panoply of, of public policy was just really fun to work on. And then I ran into this guy named Greg Fisher who was a successful serial entrepreneur, and he decided he wanted to run for U.S. Senate. <laughs> so he didn't start, you know, he decided he was going to go off the 10-meter platform of politics. And a mutual friend connected us. It started a great friendship. And, of course, he did not win that Senate race, but performed very admirably. And a group of us in Louisville, knowing that the mayor's seat was going to be open, kept knocking on his door and said, hey, you know, you're an executive. You run things. How about running the city? And he didn't say yes at first. He did ultimately relent and won that seat, not by a large margin, but won that seat in 2010. And I I went to go work for him a, a year and a half later. And this is one quick story worth telling about those intersections in life. Since we're talking about infrastructure, it's full of great puns, too. One of those great intersections in life where you have to make a choice. And I, at the time, was 38 years old, and I had a great career in the private sector, and Greg Fisher's now knocking on my door saying, come work for me, come work for me. And I looked down the two paths of life. And if I stayed on the path that I was on, I knew that I would be successful financially and I was happy doing what I was doing. But I knew how to do what I was doing. I climbed that mountain and I'd seen the other side. And the clients would come and go and the public policy issues would still be there. But I knew how to do that. And I looked down this other path and going into local government and taking on this leadership task with him. And I thought, wow, where's my life going to be 10 to 15 years from now if I do that? And I had no idea. And that was too enticing to not go check out that path (laughs) and figure out where could this take me in life? And a decade later, I'm sitting here in this great seat at Accelerator and working with mayors and their senior leaders around the country working on some of our country's gnarliest problems, but also some of our greatest opportunities. And so I I retell that story a lot to folks because sometimes in life, you just got to take the road less traveled. I love that. So I'm actually giving a speech tomorrow on authentic leadership in my alma mater. And Ah, cool. Absolutely nothing. But one of the things I'm going to talk to people about is, I love the way you say it. The way I would say it is, you know, is about being brave. You seem to like lean in and like that excited you. And that's so exciting that there's this unknown path. I'm going to do it for a lot of people. I think it's like, it's a little scary to do that. You know, you fellowship it for a lot. And I think that you're absolutely right though. Like whether it's, it speaks to you and like, I'm all in, I've got my risk taker or it doesn't speak to you. And you're like, I'd like to try, but I'm not sure I can. You still got to do it, right? You still got to go put your foot in front of the other and do it because those opportunities, you just got to take it when they come up and you've got to trust that, you know, and if you're following your passion, which clearly you are, because you are somebody who cares, obviously, a lot about making government work, and you've done an amazing job doing that in your career, then you've got to take the opportunities to be able to do it more and do it bigger, and not worry so much about where it's going to take you. So I mean, that's really inspiring to me. So thank you for sharing that story. 
Well, thank you for giving me the time and space to tell it. it. I just decided that I was too young to be that complacent and just keep doing what I knew how to do if it was comfortable. There's a time in life where you ought to force yourself into being a little uncomfortable and see where it takes you. Oh, that's a great message for all of us. I will end on saying that I know that there was a talk a little bit when our friend Greg Fisher was termed out of office that you might run for mayor. You show yourself. I will tell you that I think you would make a fantastic mayor. I'm delighted to work with you in your new capacity at Accelerate for America, where you get to work with mayors around the country. And you're doing such great work. But if if someday that road winds around again, I'm all <laughs> in. If you ever want to run for mayor, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Well, thank you. Coming from you, that is the most beautiful compliment. And I am obviously a big fan of of public service. I've never done the kind where you have to put your name on a ballot, but I've I've done a lot of years in the other kind of public service. And no matter which path people take, being elected, appointed, signing up for any kind of service, it's what makes this place great. There's a lot of folks who want to wave a flag and scream about America. If you're going to be in America and you're going to be an American, you got to get in there and do the work. It's hard work to maintain the best democracy on the planet. And we got to all be a part of it, whether you decide to do something with your work or being in an elected office, or whether you just decide to go pick up the trash across the street from your house. Say hello to somebody. Just go vote. Everybody's got to get in the game here. There's a lot of people who want to talk about America. I'm really glad to be sitting here today with somebody and leads a group of people like I do who are getting in the game to really make America great. Amen on that. Thank you so much, Marielle, for being here with me today and for everybody that's keeping their eyes out next week for Infrastructure Week. Participate, tell the stories, go out and talk about what good stuff's happening with those dollars to rebuild our country. It's very exciting. So thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Infrastructure Week, May 15th through 19th. Tell your story. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.